One of the professors that I work with at Golden Gate Baptist Seminary is a man by the name of Gary Arbino. He's a New Testament scholar. Gary's a fascinating person. He's very opinionated, and he's an Old Testament scholar, knows a lot of things. But uh, he said to me one time, he said, if any student ever uses a particular word in my classroom, I'm going to give him an F right away. And I said, what word is that? And he said, the word is a paradigm shift. He says, people are using that word all the time, thinking that it's academic to use it. In most cases, they have no idea what it means. Well, I thought that he was rather radical when he said that, but I am just about come to the conclusion he's right. Paradigm shift is a, is a phrase, a word, a concept that is being overused so much today that, that it no longer has any meaning. At the same time, I want to use the concept of a paradigm shift because we are in a paradigm shift. I had one student come to me one time and say, Brother Wagner, our church is experiencing a paradigm shift. And I said, oh, really? I said, uh, what are you doing? And he said, uh, we're changing the time of our morning service on Sunday from 11 o'clock until 10 o'clock. And I said, sir, that, that's not a paradigm shift. That, that's a change of time. A paradigm shift is much greater. A paradigm shift is where, where you change a whole pattern of thought, a whole direction. A paradigm shift is the industrial revolution that took place. A paradigm shift is the uh, Protestant Reformation where all of society took on a brand new direction. The reason I want to use that is because I believe that we are living in a paradigm shift. I quoted a little bit earlier um, in the last lecture what James Woolsey said when he said that today we are faced with World War Number 4, and it's right before us. And I believe that World War Number 4, the beginning of that, together with the technical advances that are made in our world today, really does qualify for a paradigm shift. And anybody living in this particular period of time has to realize that from year to year, the patterns of society, the patterns of thought are changing quite radically. I'll give you a couple of examples of that. I have a, uh, a secretary at, at my school in, in Olivet University, and, and this young lady is extremely talented. She has her master's degree in computer uh, technology from uh, UCLA. Very brilliant young lady, and she came to me one time, and she said, Now, um, Brother Wagner, is there anything that you need? And I said, Yes, I would like to have some business cards. And she says, Well, yes, of course, business cards. And then she says, Is there anything else you need? And I said, Well, I would like to have some stationery. And she paused for a minute and said, Stationery? What is stationery? And I said, Well, stationery is this, this paper that has my address and the logo of the school and my name on it. She says, what size paper? And I says, well, it is eight and a half by 11. I still write letters. Oh, yes, 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 I'll get it. The most amazing thing was she did not know what stationery was. Why? Because our students at our school don't use stationery. They don't use paper. They just carry a computer around everywhere they go. The fact is, at our school, we were working towards getting accreditation, and we had to have a uh, self-study. And their self-study was about a 1,000 pages. And if you can imagine a self-study being a 1,000 pages, it's a pretty thick document. Uh, we worked for months and months on it. We finally got it done. It was due at a particular time at the accrediting agency. And so we sent it in to them. And about a week after it was due, we called up and said, did you get our, our uh, uh, 
self-study. They said, no, we didn't get it. You didn't. Uh-oh, we were worried. They were worried. We thought the mail had failed us. So we said, we'll send you another one. So we sent them another self-study. And they came and they said, we didn't get it. I said, you didn't get it? Well, you should have it. And we tried to find out what was wrong. The problem was that we sent them the self-study on one disc, a thousand pages. They were looking for a great, big, thick manuscript. And we said, well, we sent it. And they said, you're the first school to have sent us the whole self-study on a manuscript. I mean, on, on a disc. Now, all of the self-studies have to be sent in electronically to them. It is a paradigm shift. They're changing. And we see that this shift is taking place today. So a paradigm shift is happening. Uh, if you don't believe there's a paradigm shift, go into one of these office supply centers and talk to the young people there and ask if they have typewriters, and you'll find out what a paradigm shift is. They don't have them. Things are different. Things are moving. Now, what effect does that have to our topic today? Our topic is, of course, the whole concept and idea that militant Islam is, is at war with, with the world to try to take over the world. And the Muslim leadership are very, very brilliant in the acknowledgement of a paradigm shift and the using of some of these new methods of technology and understanding the paradigm that we're living in today. And they are probably superior to where we as Christians are. And we have to give them credit for that. So one of the things I'd like to do is to show you different ways that they have made the adjustments that are necessary for them to use the new paradigm. As I said before in the very first lecture, one of the books that I wanted to write was a book dealing with why various groups were growing. The Southern Baptists, the Assemblies of God, the Jehovah Witnesses, the Mormons, the homosexuals, and the Muslims. And when you came to the homosexuals, which is really secularism, secularism has a, a very well-defined strategy. And homosexualism kind of goes along with this strategy. I remember back in 1961, in Albuquerque, New Mexico, I was a member of a Rotary Club as a pastor of a church in Albuquerque, very young at that point, And we had a guest speaker that came. And this guest speaker, I had never heard of the man before. I never heard of the organization that he was ahead of. But I remember very well what he said. He said, we're out to change the world. We do not like the way that the American society is going. We feel as if the way that we have is much better. And so we have a strategy to change the United States of America. And he said that we decided that uh, how we, we made a decision as to how we could do it. First of all, we thought that we could change the American society by having influence in the administrative branch of government. And so we began to try to influence the presidents and the, the leaders at the administrative branch. And we discovered that, that you cannot do that. It's a failure. The main reason is, is because the presidents and the administrative branch of states are all elected by the people. And it's elected on a very uh, definite uh, periodic uh, period of time. So they, they could not influence them. 
Then they said, what we're going to do then is we're going to influence the society via Congress and the legislative branch of government. And so he gave how they had tried to do that. And once again, because the individuals were elected and that the will of the people was shown forth and the will of the people did not want to go along with the liberal philosophy that this particular group was advocating, they said we could not change the society that way. Then they came along and they said we thought we would try the third branch of government and that is the judicial branch of government. And he said in 1962, here is where we are going to change the American society because there is a limited number of judges. In most cases, the judges are on a permanent uh, appointment and these people we can change and we're going to change America via the judicial branch of government. The man was from an organization I never heard of. It was called the ACLU. He's been very successful. They have changed America. And not only have they changed America through the ACLU, but the Muslims are very much aware of how this change has taken place. And the Muslim community today is doing much the same way. They're saying we also will change uh, the United States and the Western world through the judicial branch of government. And they have been somewhat successful about that. Last time I spoke about um, Dr. Bruce Jones's uh, different way of approaching uh, what is happening in the United States. And I got down to point number seven. And uh, it was just an example of how they are bringing pressure in the American society to change the society from within. Well, he has a very interesting um, talk on, on the those airborne Arabs. And I'd like to just approach this, and it's going to be a, a little bit longer period of time, but I think it'd be good for us to see exactly how there was an attempt by the Muslims in uh, Minnesota to bring about a situation where they could bring the judicial branch of government into effect. On November 20th, 2006, at 6.30 p.m., Six imams boarded a U.S. Airways flight number 300 from Minneapolis to Phoenix, Arizona. And uh, what happened was just a page out of the um, uh, Dawah playbook. It incorporated many of the tactics. It incorporated uh, what, what they wanted to do by intimidation, by the threat of terrorism, by trying to get the law on their side, and it was a very interesting case. We'd like to kind of analyze that case right now. And you might want to call it the case of the flying imams. Well, what was the problem? Well, first of all, these six imams drew attention to themselves when they knelt down, knelt down and prayed um, on prayer rugs at the airport. Now, they didn't pray in the chapel, which was available. They did not pray in silence, which in itself is not threatening. But it could have been calculated to, in fact, draw attention to themselves and later claim that this was a the reason they were taken off the plane. They did. They, then they prayed again at the gate. And Islam only required you to pray once at sundown. They prayed a second time at the gate. And apparently they shouted, Aluha Akbar, Aluha Akbar, which means God is great. Then they got on board with the first-class passengers. While only one had a first-class ticket, they all got on board during the time that the first-class passengers were seated, which seems very presumptuous and rude to many. Then they did not take their assigned seats, but rather they took up seats in the rear, 
near the middle cabin exit rows and up in the first class near the cockpit. Now, those that know said this was the exact conf- uh, configuration that was used by the 9-11 hijackers. When they were told they were supposed to stay in their assigned scene before takeoff, they refused to move, but they kept these positions even after the, the hostess asked them to move to their correct seats. Anybody familiar enough with 9-11 would question the motive behind that maneuver. Two of the imams asked for enlarged seat belts. Even though one of them claimed he weighed 280 pounds, but his ID said he was just 200 pounds. And then, after they had gotten these extensions, they left them on the floor. And it's been pointed out that a seatbelt extension can be used as a weapon by wrapping the open end of the belt around your, your fist and swinging the heavy metal buckle. As such, it can become a deadly weapon. The men were overheard muttering angry denunciations of Americans, Osama bin Laden grumbling about our foreign policy and then the killing of Saddam Hussein, who was anything but a devout Muslim. They also made unidentified odd requests to the flight crew. Well, who were the people? This was the, this was the problem. Who were the people that, that were on the plane? Well, first of all, the gate attendant was struck by the fact that when these men prayed, uh, the, the flight attendant grew suspicious of the way they were praying very loud. Second, it was an Arab-born passenger who spoke fluent Arabic who called attention to their inflammatory remarks, which they probably thought no one would understand because they were speaking in Arabic. Third, there was another passenger named Pauline verified the fact that the requested seatbelts were placed on the floor and not used and also felt that their behavior was suspicious. When the imams were escorted off the plane, the other Muslim passenger is joined in a round, uh, a round of applause for the U.S. airline troop. What about the airplane captain? After receiving multiple complaints, the captain then consulted with the federal air marshal, a U.S. Airways ground security advisor, and the airline security office in Phoenix, and all agreed that this was clearly suspicious behavior that warranted removal. It also needs to be pointed out that when you go on a plane or a ship, it is the captain who rules. The prerogative of the called the captain's authority, which recognizes that the last line of defense against airborne terrorism is the pilot and the crew. One observer said, the day we tell the captain of a commercial airline that he cannot remove a problem passenger unless he divides beyond all question where is the passenger's, uh, passenger's head and heart in the day of commercial airlines begins to crumble. Later, three separate investigations found that the pilot and the crew acted correctly, and uh, it was the U.S. Airways, it was the Minneapolis Police Department, and the Air Carrier Security Committee of the Airline Pilots Association, which found the decisions made by all policy uh, parties were made as a result of the negative behavior of the passengers. Newt Gingrich said on YouTube that the crew of the U.S. airplane should have been invited to the White House and congratulated for being correct in their protection of citizens. And it also should be pointed out that on the recorded messages played throughout the airport terminals every 15 minutes, people are instructed to report suspicious luggage, packages, and people, and the people did actually report them. The police. 
One federal air marshal observed that the crew and the passengers act as authoritarian eyes and ears on every flight. If they are afraid of reporting suspicious behavior out of fear of being labeled a racist, a bigot, the terrorists will certainly use these fears to their advantage in future aviation attacks. So if the outcome is what is now described as illegal warfare, these imams engaged in, it has been very successful. It would have made us all look more vulnerable to the vicious attacks of Muslim terrorists who have weakened our defenses. Another marshal said, the situation could make crews and passengers in the future second-guess reporting these events. This compromising the aircraft security out of fear of being labeled a dogmatist or an Islamophobe um, is, is totally incorrect. The pretenders, who were the ones that were, were on the plane, the, the imams? First of all, the leader. The leader was an uh, imam, Omar Shaheen, who was, lo- who was educated in Sudan and Saudi Arabia, and he then came to the U.S. as an immigrant in 2003 and became a citizen of the country. He claims he's a moderate Muslim, but has publicly said he doubts that Muslims were responsible for the 9-11 slaughter of thousands of innocent Americans. Um, as you study this man, you find out that he is really quite a radical Muslim. Two, the links to terrorism. The individuals, as noted by Jihad Washington, an article entitled Flying Imams, More Terrorist Links, from 2002 to 2003, he was the president of an Islamic center of Tucson, the city's largest mosque. It has an extensive history of terror links, as Steve Emerson has pointed out. Another former was Wadi Hodge, who became a uh, Osama bin Laden's personal secretary, and he was later con- um, convicted of plotting the 1998 bombings of the U.S. Embassy in Kenya and, Han- and Tanzania. Another of the fellowship was Hardy Hajur, who piloted a plane that flew into the Pentagon on 9-11. And Omar's response was that the mosque should not be held accountable for former members who had been engaged in terrorism after they left Arizona. Three, links to terrorist institutions. When he came president of the ICT in 2002 that raised money for the Holy Land Foundation, which has been proven again and again that they fund Hamas efforts to recruit uh, terrorists. So you see that these men all had terrorist roots and terrorist ideologies, links to the terrorist issues. The moderate Muslim Dr. M. Zudidi M. Yasser, who lives in Arizona, points out that the imam in Arabic means teacher, not leader. And he points out that if you listen to the sermons of Ahmed, which he had for several years, they're intensely political and agenda-driven. So their purpose was very definitely intimidation. Lies and uh, terrorist issues. Well, as you look at it, you see that they had a number of lies. Number one, they claimed that they did not shout Allah, but passengers said they did. And they did it when the gate, at the gate, when they were boarding and cried out, Alua Akbar, which sounds to me like an old-fashioned war cry. Two, they claimed that they were handcuffed and harassed by dogs, but they weren't. Going to the plane and coming back to get their one bag, one imam said, six collars and handcuffs. It's terrible. Lie number three. He claimed that he was discriminated against because he practiced his faith and wanted to pray, but that was not the reason. Lie number four, they said they did not pray loudly, but a gate agent said they did, and of course, other passengers in line could testify to this. Lie number five, they said they didn't have one, they they didn't have only one-way tickets to Arizona, which is where five of them live, but in fact, three of them did have one-way tickets, and three of them did not check any baggage at all. Number six, lie six. 
They not only cry discrimination, which is not true, as this had nothing to do with racism, but one media outlet compared them to Rosa Parks, the brave African-American lady who refused to sit in the back of the bus and help launch a civil rights movement. The media has made a, a big deal out of this airplane incident that took place, saying that there was a lot of prejudice uh, uh, actions going on against them. Legal warfare and terrorism. Well, the focal point of the story is that the imams cried foul, accused the airlines of racial discrimination, and complained that all they did was pray. According to Carr, the um, Center for Arab uh, American Islamic Relations, that they were misunderstood. Kerr says that the bottom line is that they were Middle Eastern-looking men, and this scares people. But that isn't what scared people. Unfortunately, the press didn't help the public perception of this problem either because, as one observer said, there was a lot more things that were left out of the official media report or even distorted things, such as this account had included. And Mitchell Mocklin puts it this way. There was a lot of things swept under the Muslim prayer rugs in Minneapolis. But true to the uh, Dawah playbook, they complained about their treatment. Omar said that this was the most humiliating event in his life. He also said he came to a country of joy freedom. But I have to wonder with what happened. Maybe there is no freedom for an immigrant. America has destroyed freedom for all faithful Muslims. If he wanted to protect freedoms, he would have understood the need to report suspicious behavior. This was not his purpose. But his purpose was really lawfare, or the idea of taking the law, the airlines, for what they did. At first, they wanted to go to court and sue the passengers under the heading of John Doe, which represents the unnamed people who blew the whistle on these imams as they ran the play out of the playbook. But in due time, in July 2007, a bill was passed which would give immunity from lawsuits to people who do as they're told and report suspicious behavior. So the original lawsuit that these imams brought against the the, uh, the perpetrators, against the fact that they were taken off the airplane, they first sued John Doe, which was all of the passengers that were on the plane that called to the leaders of the airline saying, these people are very suspicious. But then a bill was passed that said, no, you have immunity from a lawsuit if you see something that is suspicious. I think it's very important that we have that. When they failed and they wanted to change the focus on the police and the airlines employees and they wanted to boycott U.S. airways. And then this terrorist linked imam wanted the court to turn over the training manuals and other documents related to the security procedures of the U.S. airways. Now, that's fascinating when you think about it. They were saying, okay, well, we'll turn our interest on the airways, and the only way we can defend ourselves is if we have all of the security procedures and uh, of the United States, uh, of U.S. airways and of the United States government. Can you imagine what the terrorists could do with that if they knew exactly what were the security procedures that were used to uh, be assured that the people on the plane were not terrorists? And so probably one of the main reasons they even did this was to try to get a hold of that information. Uh, one person said, to make a long story short, these imams cried out that the passengers, airline crew, gate agents, airplane cleaners, police officers, federal air marshals, food caterers, baggage handlers, screeners, airplane mechanics, ticket agents, they, uh, the guy in the tower and the girl who works in Starbucks booth, all discriminated against them because they were Muslims. Well, that, that may be the case. Well, what happened? 
there was an outcry, of course, at the beginning. But then the Muslims were able to change this around to the place and the point to where suddenly you begin to say, well, maybe we, as, as the people on the airplane and the Americans, we are the ones at fault. Well, the complainers, there were supporters that gathered outside U.S. Airways headquarters in Florida, and they wanted to tell U.S. Airways that we will not accept a second-class uh, citizenship. And they demonstrated in the streets against U.S. Airways and also against the security measures by the United States government. And, of course, Carr got in the act and acted out the other part in the drama. When Peter King, chairman of the Homeland Security, uh, was interviewed on TV with the executive director, we heard the same uh, statement from him about lies, Islam, Islamophobia, discrimination, etc., as King expressed his opinion that this was all a setup. But what is not known by most people is that Carr has a history of defending those who want to insist on their rights. This story points out the effectiveness of the Islamic uh, radicals of trying to use the United States laws to accomplish what they want to accomplish. They, they threaten lawsuits. Many lawsuits have come down. They will continue to come down. And uh, I think they have been somewhat successful in that particular area. But I felt like this was a, a good example of the effectiveness that they had. Well, what about the media? The media. As I said to you before, that we're in a paradigm shift, and there is no question but that the power of the media today is so great that you probably will have to say that in the Western world, the media is the most powerful force that we have. I uh, go to Germany quite often, and uh, I, I always find it interesting to read the German newspapers and to read the German uh, magazines and to listen to the German radio and television. And I used to ask all of my uh, friends over there in Germany, do you think that President Bush is a good president? They'd say, oh, he's the worst president you've ever had. And I said, if I listen only to the German media, I would be in total agreement with you because that's all the German media says. That's all that comes out. They never say anything of a positive nature. And I think the media has a tremendous amount of power today and they're being very, very successful. So whether we like the media, whether we support the media, we have to realize that they've been successful. It used to be that we would have different parities on, on, uh, on various ethnic groups. It used to be that, you know, the Germans would always be the Sieg Heil, Heil Hitler, and they would be the, the radical uh, Nazis. And you would, you would take every ethnic group and you would be able to pretty well pigeonhole it. Well, the one for the Arabs was generally a, uh, uh, one of these better ones out in the, in the desert with his camel and not being very smart or intelligent. You will not see that anymore. You will not see it in television. You will not see it in the movies. And they have people today that will go over every single movie that is made and every single television program that is produced. And if there is anything in there that is negative about Islam, they will force that to be changed. Now, the media has not been favorable towards Christianity lately. They, the media has been very negative towards Christianity, but they have been very positive towards Islam. Why have they been positive towards Islam? They've been positive towards Islam primarily because the Islamist people, Card is one and many other different groups, have made a great concerted effort to influence the media. Well, 
as I was looking over the, the media and trying to uh, understand some of the things, I found out that, um, that, that, that they have a, a certain philosophy. And in this philosophy, they, they had five different points that they said we have to work on. And let me give you these five points. First of all, they said we are not. And then they say we are. Thirdly, they say we believe. Fourthly, they say come and see. And fifthly, they say let us tell you. First of all, they say we are not. You see, they don't want us to look at an Arab as a rather dim-witted person living in the desert. They, they want to see the Muslim and the Arab as being a very intelligent, loving, acceptable type of a person. And Carr has proven to be very effective in trying to defend uh, Islam, particularly in the media. In his short history of being involved in various uh, means to intimidate news organizations, they have uh, many times targeted certain individuals. There's uh, several people that they have um, really enjoyed targeting. One of them is Stephen Emerson. Another one is Daniel Pipes. Another one is Shaki Pelazi, And others that, that they will really look at and they will... Um, will we'll try to intimidate them because if you say anything negative about Islam, immediately the charge of Islamophobia, bigotry, and extremism come out. So anybody that makes a statement is going to have problems. Um, one time Charles Krautheimer in the Washington Post wrote and said, among organizations that have heard from them or felt their criticism are the National Post, the New Republic, the Los Angeles Times, the Dallas Morning News, the Weekly Readers, Current Events, the Children's Magazine. And they will always come and do everything in their power to try to make a very positive image of the Muslims. Now, I have no problem with this. I, I don't think that this is incorrect because I see it being positive that any ethnic group will be looked at in a positive way within the society where they are. So I don't see this as being negative. All I want to do is I want to say you need to be aware of this. I mentioned one time a little bit earlier that there was this movie that came out entitled um, Not Without My Daughter. And in this movie, it was a story of a lady who married a Muslim and went to Iran and was, was trapped in Iran. Well, as I was studying this movie, a statement came out from one of the people with Carr that said, that is the last movie that will ever be made that will show Islam in a negative light. That will never happen again. And I think that they have been relatively successful in being able to achieve that. Now, we are... So not only are they trying to say this is not, we're not like this. We don't want to fit into this particular concept in the minds of most people. But who are we? And they want as much as possible to show that they're decent, hardworking, loving, kind people. And, and in short, American Muslims are just as American as anybody else is. And uh, they, they emphasize that. They had a series one time on one of the uh, television stations entitled Your American Muslim Neighbors. And what they did is they showed all of the Muslims living like the, the Americans would live, taking their children to school, going to the shopping center, living very much like an American. And their whole idea was saying, we are absolutely no different than any other Americans. We are simply people trying to live, trying to be a part of the society. Now, once again, that's fine. I, I find no problems with that. 
And I think that we ought to applaud them for that. But my reasoning is, let's wait and see what happens in the future. And I wish that the imams and the mosques and the leaders of Islam, the leaders of these Islamic uh, organizations that are present in the West today, would say, that is our purpose. That's what we want to do. Let's stop at that. And if we could accept that, and we could live together with Muslims in the same society, I think we would be doing a very, very good job. There was a fascinating article that was put out, oh, probably about three years ago, by the head of the Australian Police Department. And what he did in this article is he said very simply, he said, now, we have a problem in Australia. And the problem that we have in Australia is that we have people coming from other countries that have other cultures, that have other ideals, that have other ways of living. And what these people from these other countries are doing, they are coming and they are trying to force Australia into being like their country and accepting their customs and living like they lived back where they were at. And uh, he made a statement and says, we're not going to do it. This is not what we are. We are a Christian Judeo society with Christian Judeo values. We have a certain purpose, a certain direction, a certain culture. And if you want to become a part of Australia, you have to accept our ideas and our ideology. If you don't want to accept it, go back to where you came from and you can live in your own culture where you're back. But here we have our culture. I applaud that and I agree totally with him that if people want to come and be a part of the culture and to live, let them do it. And this is what they're saying. We want to be as Americans. Amen. Let them do it. No problem whatsoever. Then their third one is we believe. And so more and more they are trying to tell what their, their theology is, what their belief system is. Again, no problem with that. But we do have a problem when we begin to force another belief system onto us. And one of the biggest complaints I have has to do with the, with the school system. And I've already talked to you about the letter that was given where the Islam says, let us come in and let us share with you what we believe. But it can be done in a way to where it begins to go across acceptable practices. And we need to be careful on that. Another example is WBAY-TV, an ABC affiliate in Green Bay, Wisconsin, uh, was talking about Ramadan in a recent broadcast. And they said, Muslims from around the Fox Valley gathered to celebrate the beginning of Ramadan. Ramadan will last for one month. It requires Muslims to fast from sunrise to sunset for the next month and to refrain from several vices listed in the Quran. Ramadan is a time for prayer and fasting. It's also a chance to show what Islam is all about. It's an ongoing effort to change the way Americans view the Islamic faith. Well, yeah. Again, they're, they're trying to say, we are not what you think. This is what we believe. This is what we are. Now, come and see is, is the third one that they have. And with this come and see, they're saying, we, we would like you to come to our mosques. We would like you to see who we are. We would like you to visit with us. We would like you to be a part of us. Now, one of the experiences that anybody has when they live in the Middle East is they are going to learn at once of the tremendous hospitality of the um, Arab people and the Muslims. 
They are wonderful, and they are very hospitable, and they will immediately invite you into their home. They will immediately give you tea, and you, you, you feel like you're at home. And again, I, I compliment them on this, and I compliment them. Uh, I've been told before that uh, you've got to remember, though, that it is one of these things that once you have accepted this hospitality, then there is an expectation that you will give the same hospitality. So it's, it is a give and take, but you've got to come and agree that they, they are very good. But come and see. Again, I mentioned earlier in the uh, lecture series that there was this 9-11, and as soon as 9-11 was over with, all the mosques had big banners, come and see what Islam really believes. And if you really want to get anybody to come and share with you what Islam believes, all you have to do is to call your local mosque and you will have two people that will come immediately and will tell you what they believe. They, they want to share their belief with other people. They're doing it and they've been quite successful with it. Let us tell you, let us tell you is, is the fifth one. And this is a strategy where they are working with the American media and uh, having a lot of success. Not only are they working with the American media that is already in existence, but they also are trying to create their own media outlets. Al Jazeera, a, a uh, new Islamic um, radio and television uh, station. And if you go to Germany, and I, I went to Germany recently, and I was looking at all the television programs that they have, and I, the one that I got, whatever it was a it was uh, either a dish or it was a um, cable. But they had 120 programs. Of those 120 programs, 21 of them were Muslim programs. Very fascinating. They, they had it down, and they're doing a very effective job in that. So um, another thing that um, one time there was a, uh, one of these, these sheiks that had come, and they were talking about uh, a statement, a, a, a program, it was on one of the national networks. I can't remember. I think it was NBC, but I'm not entirely sure at this point. And uh, they asked them the question. They said, now, um, you own 23%. They said, well, that's right. Uh, well, now, if you own 23% of that particular corporation, are you going to have any influence on it? They said, no, no. We're just going to let the corporation, the media, go the way that they want it to go. The statement at the end was, no, there was a... a, a um, lot of influence it was given. Well, another uh, person, a man by the name of Ishikov, uh, made a statement one time, and he said that on his desk, the emblem of many United States corporations, portions which are now owned by the prince. This is one of the princes of, uh, of Saudi Arabia. Time, AOL, Time Warner, he has $1 billion invested in AOL. News Corp, $1 billion. Disney Corporation, $50 million, not to mention his $10 billion stake in Citicorp, the banking giant. Ishikov suggested, but surely, Prince, give, given your holdings, you got little influence with the American media yourself. Oh, yes, he told me. He talks to the top executives in these firms all the time. I try to tell them not to be biased, he said. So, in the media, they they are working to try to have more influence in the media. Christianity appears to be losing as far as the media uh, influence is concerned, whereas Islam is growing all around the world. And again, 
I see no wrong with it because in America we have this freedom of religion. I think it's great. I think it's wonderful. I think it's fine. They ought to have that right to do it. It's fascinating to me, too, how they're using the Internet. The Internet is the number one means of communications in the world today. I'm president of Olivet University, and we have have been very successful in the use of the Internet in, in the United States, in the whole world, in fact. And there are ways that you can determine, according to the number of hits that you get, as to how successful your Internet site is. Well, if you look under Christianity, you will see, and I haven't looked in the last three or four weeks, but uh, generally speaking, the number one Christian website is the Christian Post. The, the Christian Post comes from Olivet University, and it is a part of our uh, journalism department. And then number four is one that's called CrossMap, which is also our Christian uh, Olivet University's uh, Google site, Christian Google site. And then number seven is uh, Jubilee Music, which is from our music department. So we've been very successful in in using the Internet to, to bring about... Um, influence from our school into the world and to help make Christianity better known. Now, if you go to another area of websites, and that is the one for religion in the world. You see, I'm saying this is the Christian website that we're number one. If you go to religion, you find something different because the first two websites in religion are both Muslim websites. Then the third one is the Christian Post, The fourth one is a Muslim website, uh, not Muslim, excuse me, a Mormon website. And the fifth one is a New Age website. And then I stopped at that point. I didn't want to go any further. But what they're doing very successfully, they are using the Internet in an effective way. When I wrote my book and it got on Amazon, and, and I hadn't had experience with a book being on Amazon before, so I was kind of glad you go, you go to Google and how Islam plans to change the world. And there it is, my website, and, and talks all about it and all the reviews and everything. And, and you kind of like that. You're kind of pleased with it. One thing that I did not realize is that Amazon is smart enough to be able to sell these websites to certain people and to get advertising money for it. Because if you're going to write a book on, you know, uh, good nutrition, there might be some particular company that wants to have up there in the corner something that says, if you want to learn more about new nutrition, come to our website. I didn't realize they did that. So on my website, I haven't seen it lately, but for about two years it was on there, there was uh, the, the sponsor of my website was a website that says, do you want to convert to Islam? Contact this website and we will help you to convert to Islam. And I thought, isn't that interesting? That they're, they're so far ahead of us of being able to, to, to go to a Christian website talking about Islam and to say, now you can convert to Islam. They are very much ahead of us as Christians. I've been talking a lot about this idea of a mega strategy, a, a macro strategy, excuse me, and, and a meta strategy and a micro strategy. And if this mac- macro level is where they have been extremely successful in being able to influence uh, uh, the thinking and the thoughts of people, Mormons have done exactly the same thing. They, they, they their, their strategy is well thought out, well uh, formed. And they are changing the way people look. 
I used to go on the streets of, um, of my uh, home city, and I would send my students out on the streets, and I would say, tell me, what do you think about Baptists, Southern Baptists particularly, and what do you think about the Mormons, and what do you think about the Muslims? Always the most negative responses came about the Southern Baptists. They're bigots, they're, they're closed, they're fundamentalists, they're everything else. The Mormons, well, they're very loving. They have two missionaries that go out, great community, they're wonderful people. The Muslims, we get sometimes very positive remarks and sometimes very negative remarks. And, and that's simply a part of the, of the uh, macro strategy that people are using. And the M- Muslims have been very successful in saying, let us use the media, let us use the Internet, let us use any form of communication that we have today to make people think that we are good, righteous, honest people, and they have been successful in that. Let's go into the, the next one, and this is influence through economics. Influence through economics. Oh, I have been very concerned about this. Because without the American people realizing it, the, the economy of America is slowly but surely being transferred out of the hands of Americans into the hands of other people. I believe it was uh, Pickens. See, was, it was his name, see, something Pickens. He, he had an advertisement on, on the uh, televisions in America, and he said, that every year there is $700 billion that is being transferred from American hands into the hands of other people because of the energy problem. $700 billion a year. He said this is the greatest transfer of wealth in the history of mankind. And, of course, Z. Boone Pickens was trying to say, what we have to do is we have to change that and we have to find some way to where we're not transferring our wealth to other places. Well, the transfer of wealth is really going to two areas. One is going to China, and the other one is going is to the Arab countries. And if you want to get an idea of the wealth that the Arabs have and what they have been able to receive primarily from the Western world, just go and study some of their cities like uh, Kuwait, Dubai, uh, uh, Mecca, and see what they are building. They are building huge metropolitan areas. I believe it's Dubai, and I'm not sure it's Dubai or one of those countries down there, where they have built a mountain inside a building where people can do downhill skiing in the desert. I mean, just think about that. A mountain, downhill skiing, anybody can ski if they want to. The only seven-star hotel in the world that costs something like... $3,000 a night for a simple place. They're building islands. They're building huge, huge uh, buildings. And they say, all you've got to do is to go down there to these countries and see the enormous wealth that they have. The largest building in the world is being built in Mecca right now today, right next to the, the mosque. They, they, they have this money, and they are using it, and they're using it effectively. But they're not only using it on themselves. They are smart enough to say, what we need to do is we need to reinvest this money back into 
the um, United States and back into the Western world. Now, that's one of the reasons why we uh, uh, <clears throat> are able to stay afloat. In fact, it was back uh, about six months ago from now when there was a big problem with some of the banks. And this was before the, the last economic downturn that we're in right now today. But some of the banks were having problems. And then they came along and they said, well, uh, there are some people that are, that are bringing these banks up and they're supporting them. And they're going to bail these banks out. And they begin to name some of these corporations that were going to give the banks, you know, $15 billion, $20 billion, and all of this different money. If you study that, you discover that the people that are bailing these banks out are the Muslims. They're the ones that are coming in and saying, okay, we will help you out. We will, we will give you $5, 10000000000 billion and bail them out, but not without a cost. Because then more and more control is being uh, issued in and taken of these banks and these particular financial institutions that we have. So we just have to be aware of that, be awakened to it, and know that this is happening. And yet, for some reason, we don't seem to be able to stop it. Wall Street Journal made a statement not long ago, and they said that every week $4 billion is invested by Saudi Arabia alone into the United States, $4 billion a, uh, a week. Again, $4 billion is not a lot of money. Multiply that times 52. Multiply that by 10, 10 years, and you begin to see that it is not too much that's uh, going to stop them from slowly but surely taking over many or most of the major corporations in the world today. I don't know what is going to happen with this new bailout that we have that the American government's going to give. All I do know is they don't have the money to do it. They're going to have to get this money from somewhere, and the only two groups that have the money to lend it to the United States so that they can bail out the American economy are the Chinese and the Muslims. And I can guarantee you that they're going to have some strings attached to that. Now, another way that they have been successful in e economics is by boycotting particular um, commercial entities. And they've been somewhat successful at that around the world. Now, we know that no matter where you go in the world, you're going to find a, uh, a McDonald's or you're going to find Coca-Cola or some other type of a, an American corporation working. Well, again, the Muslims are, are sharp enough to know that if these are successful, what we need to do is we need to either buy the company or we need to duplicate it. Let me give you several examples. Um, almost one out of every four people in the Asian Pacific region say that they have avoided buying American brands. Why? Well, again, pressure. America is not the country you want to admire. It might have to do with politics. But it's just a simple fact that a large number of people in Asia simply refuse to buy American brands. Now, the German bicycle maker, Riesi and Müller, has canceled all business deals with American suppliers. The Giebler Cola Company, a soft drink maker based in Great Britain that markets to the Muslim community, called for a boycott of all United States global brands. Actually, the Giebler Cola Company was an attempt for them to uh, duplicate Coca-Cola. 
And they said, now, we want Muslims not to drink Coca-Cola, but we want them to drink Gibla Cola. And you all are aware of the fact that when they had this boycott against Israel, that um, they would boycott any any corporation that had anything to do with Israel. And there was a lot of problems. They, they yielded in several areas, but uh, one of those was Coca-Cola. They tried to boycott Coca-Cola. Consumers in Europe and the Middle East have snapped up 4.5 million bottles of Mecca-Cola, an anti-American soft drink launched in October 2002. Mecca-Cola, with a model that translates as Don't Drink Stupidly, Drink Responsibly, has orders for 14 million more bottles. The cola is also sold in the Middle East and uh, also in neighborhoods in the United States, in Dearborn, Detroit, and very soon in New Jersey. So you see that they have been successful in saying, let us create our own economic structure, take over what we can from what does exist in the West, but we will slowly be able to gain more and more economic power in the world today. Uh, later in the same article, talking about Mecca-Cola, they said Mecca-Cola founder Tariq Mathuzi also plans to open halal fried chicken restaurants to be called HFC, a jab at the KFC chain. His aim, people will stop eating and drinking American goods and using American goods, he said, and that will increase the social problems in the United States and increase joblessness and Americans will awake from their long sleep and maybe ask the United States government to respond. Anybody that knows the political situation that we are in in America today would probably have to come back and say, well, they've, they've been somewhat successful. They have been somewhat successful in, in being able to bring about some, some economic downturns. I think the American economic problem today has come primarily because we as Christians have just been living at the highest level of pleasure, of lust, of doing what we want to do, and now we're beginning to have to pay for it. But the problem is the people that we have to pay are the Muslims and the Chinese, those very people whose ideology disagrees with us. So it is not only an attempt to destabilize America through the economic powers, but it is also an attempt to destabilize Christianity. For you see, in the Islam theology, they look and they see Christianity and American as being the same. Why? They don't differentiate between uh, state and church in the Islamic thought. So when they come and they look at America, they see American Christianity as being the same. And thus they see America as going down the tubes economically, and they're more than glad to be able to be a part of this destruction of the United States. What about influence through politics? Now, all Americans are, are thrilled that we have a black president. We now have a situation where we are, are open enough that people of different ethnic groups could become um, uh, leaders in the United States, and, and we're very happy about that. But we also learn that they are quite effective of trying to influence elections, that they are very effective at trying to uh, influence politicians, particularly in a democratic society. Now, they will not accept a democratic society. 
a democratic society is not Islamic because it's not um, a theology, uh, theocratic. It is democratic, ruled by the people. So they will do everything they can to, to do away with the democratic way of life. And they can do that through politics. I believe I mentioned earlier in the in this lecture series that in Malawi, when they had an election there, what they did is they put up a Muslim man to be the president of Malawi, even though 78% of the country of Malawi was Christian, and they simply brought in millions and millions and millions of dollars and really, to make it very simple, bought the election. As soon as this man got into power, he very effectively changed the country by building mosques everywhere in trying to influence people to become Muslims, by building schools that were Muslim schools, using the state money for that, and he was effective in that. Now, how do they how do they affect various places? One of the ones that states that they are really targeting is uh, Belgium. And one way that they are able to to get certain privileges in some of these countries, particularly in Europe, is, is because of the oil and gas. Let's face it, it's a fact of life. It was in England, in London, England, where they had a beautiful park in downtown London. And uh, nobody could build anything on this park, totally forbidden to build anything. Today, there is a large mosque there. How did they do it? Very simply. The head of Saudi Arabia came and he said, we want to build a mosque here on this park. The government said no. He said, well, let's reconsider our agreements and our contractual agreements with oil and gas. Okay, you can build it. And they built it. Go to Brussels, Belgium. Beautiful park. Where do they have their, their uh, mosque? On that park. And so they're willing to use political um, influence to get what they want, and they have been successful primarily through the economic, but also through the political. Uh, Dr. Turake, the, the president of the World Islamic League, said that the European parliaments are a very good way to reach within the country. He also notes there are many Muslims in the parliament of Belgium making good progress in the proclamation of Islam. Because of a good relationship between the Muslims in the Belgium government and the country, the World Islamic League was able to do the following when uh, Dr. Turakai went down to, uh, to uh, Brussels. Number one, they received permission to teach the Islamic religion in Belgium schools. So now in Belgium, which is a Christian society, there is Islam being taught by teachers, paid by the state, um, so that they can also have their own schools. Two, they received permission to have a prayer room in the Brussels airport. So if you go to Brussels airport today, there is a chapel that could be used by all the religions, but there is now a new prayer room that is used only by Muslims. Three, they received permission to build a new Islamic cemetery, again, on some ground that could not be used for anything else, but they were able to get permission. Four, they got some laws changed so that... Um, Muslims can practice their own religious commitments. Laws, it says, you have to give them time out for them to have their um, uh, time of prayer. They also said you have to give them Friday off. And then there are some laws today that say you have to give them a month off for Ramadan. And they say it's not fair that our students and our workers have to go for a whole month 
without eating and fasting and having to work. And so the laws are, are rapidly being changed in the countries around in the world today. A successful plan of their mega plan is to bring both education and poli- educators and politicians to the Islamic faith. Here are some examples of their successes. Alexander Kronmar is involved with American Foreign Affairs. He has a master's degree in comparative religion from Harvard University. He has also worked in the Middle East. Uh, he married an American Muslim woman and became a Muslim himself. He was a producer of the recently released film on the life of Muhammad. Dr. Kaspar Ibrahim Shaheen became a Muslim on June 10, 2002. He's a scientist and an economist and the professor of technology at the state institution in the United States. He is also the president of this institution, a well-known by former presidents George Bush and Ronald Reagan. He became a Muslim as a result of the influence of his Islamic friends. It was stated that he too wants to bring Islam to other scientists and prominent people in America by the use of mass media. But first, he wants to bring his own family into Islam. Dr. Hofmann Murat, the former German ambassador to Algeria, who converted to Islam. It was reported that he found Islam as a logical religion and one that was very close to the human mind. He found that Christianity is a faded religion and he's using all of his influence to spread Islam in Germany and around the globe. And he's been quite successful. The fact of the matter is that when you are in Germany, you hear much about this man and, and they have him on radio and television and, and he is the... Uh, He's kind of the Billy Graham, I would say, of, of German religion at this particular point because he can get access to any of the media anytime he wants. The son of the president of the BBC became a Muslim. BBC being the British Broadcasting Company became a Muslim, married a Muslim woman, and changed his name to Yair Beat. He has reported that his goal is to spread Islam in the United Kingdom and to help his uh, family embrace Islam. These are just a few of the names of prominent converts in the political realm and, and in the um, realm of the media. Uh, many of the, one of the many rumors surrounding the death of Princess Diane was that she was killed by the Secret Service because she was considering marrying a Muslim. This rumor was probably fake and false, but at the same time, the possibility of a Muslim being in the uh, British royalty was was very close, and, of course, we'd be very concerned about that. Okay, the Muslims trying to influence the media, the economics, the politics, doing it through legal methods, doing it through use of tremendous financial uh, support by the use of politics in a free society. They are going to continue to work in these areas. And you are going to continue to see a growth of their influence. You're going to continue to see elected officials being uh, brought into the Congress and being into state legislators. And you're going to see that they will be successful in these areas. In the 7th century, Muhammad learned much from the Christians and Jesus concerning the belief in one God. Now it seems like Islam is learning once again how to use radio, television, the internet, and the printed media to try to control the minds and souls of the present generation. Encouraged by recent successes and well-financed by oil, oil, oil dollars, Islam has come out of the dark ages. To say that Islam is surpassing the West in public relations would be an overstatement. 
but it's also foolish and incorrect to dismiss their efforts in this area. Only time will determine if their efforts will be successful enough to make great gains and influence the thinking of the average Westerner. We're only at the beginning stage of their influence in these areas. I think that most people in the Western world look again at the Muslims as illiterate people of the desert, as better ones that know no better. But we have to totally change our opinion and have to realize that these people are highly educated, highly trained, and are using their abilities, their resources, in a way that is much better than what we as Christians are using today. We have a problem on our hands. Thank you.